This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Jody Vans in for Mike Smith. Thanks for joining us on a very busy Monday. We've got a lot to get to today. We'll touch on the high cost of gas prices. We'll get into how the affordability crunch is hitting you at the grocery store. And should there be some restraint or restriction on profits for grocers? We'll talk about that. Keith Baldry will join us for Baldry's Beat, of course, at 10 o'clock today, as well as we'll dive right into something that will impact all of us in British Columbia, as one of BC's largest unions is conducting a province-wide strike vote for 33,000 members employed in the public sector. You may or may not have heard this ad on our airways. Listen to this. In challenging times, public workers are there for us delivering the services our communities rely on. But as the cost of living skyrockets, these workers are falling behind. Now is the time to invest in sustainable public services for our future. A message from the BCGEU. At play here, no surprise, the need for pay to be attached or aligned with the real cost of living, inflation, the BC General Employees Union President, Stephanie Smith, joins me now with more on the impasse and what we all might expect with this strike vote. Stephanie, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me this morning, Jody. Can you lay out for us what is uh, on the table, uh, how this impasse has, has really brought us to this point where a strike vote is needed? Oh, absolutely. So what we're talking about right now, and and there is some confusion around public sector and public service. So what we're talking about is our 33,000 members in public service. So these are workers that work directly for the BC government. So all of the ministry staff, you know, your public liquor stores and cannabis stores, corrections officers, um, commercial vehicle inspectors, Parks, I mean, the list is endless. It's 33,000 people, but it is direct government workers. And we began bargaining with the employer, the Public Service Agency, in the last week of January. Um, we took a bit of a pause after their first wage proposal um, because of how low it was in comparison to cost of living, asked them to come back. They did so with a second wage proposal, which, again, was unbelievably disappointing, didn't even and really go halfway to addressing cost of living. And so um, in the first week of April, we declared an impasse. It just didn't seem that we were getting anywhere at that point. And so the next step in this bargaining process is we need to go to our members and ask them for a strike vote. So when that happens, just to be clear, Stephanie, for people who might be really nervous at the idea of a strike vote, this is very much a game of chess. And getting the strike vote and seeing the sheer numbers of the BC GEU members who might say, you know what, yeah, if, if, we, don't, if we don't come closer together on, on the number that we need at this impasse, then we are prepared to go on strike. That might move the negotiations at the table somewhat, no? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. So, you know, 99% of collective agreements are achieved without any job action whatsoever. And our goal is to get a deal at the table. What we need from our membership is, um, you know, a really, really strong voice that shows the employer exactly as you said, that they are prepared to take what steps are necessary. We hope that this strong strike vote, and I should say, this has been an issue with 33,000 people as I'm sure you can imagine you get a lot of different bargaining priorities. But this bargaining priority, wages that uh, address cost of living adjustment, have some form of inflation protection, our members were unified on from the very, very beginning. So we want to see a strong strike mandate that compels the employer to come back to the table so that we can get a, a, a deal that our members will agree to accept that they will ratify. We're with Stephanie Smith, the president of the BCGEU. Somebody pointed out the BC General Employees Union. Um, I got an email from a listener who I guess heard the promo on the Simi Sarah show this morning who said, I thought it was the BC Government Employees Union, the BCGEU. Well, um, at our convention in June of last year, I, it, it, you know, we began as a direct government union. It was government employees. But since um, 1983, we have grown. Um, we now have over 85,000 members in just about every economic sector around the province. And that includes the broader public sector. So we have members who are at the bargaining table in all of the healthcare sectors, community social services, post-secondary, we represent private sector workers, strictly private sector workers. And so at our convention, we changed our name to more adequately reflect the broad diversity of our membership. All right. So that clarifies things for our listener who is very much doing her due diligence here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is one of those things that we're all trying to follow the bouncing ball in a very busy news cycle. So when it comes to this strike vote, it doesn't happen overnight. This takes time. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's a huge bargaining unit and we want to make sure we do it right. So we've been spending a lot of time doing member education. We want to make sure our members are fully informed. Since the last round of bargaining, we have grown. So we have a number of members who have never even been through a bargaining cycle. And the public service hasn't had job action or held a strike vote since well, over a decade now, a decade actually. And so wow. there's a lot of members who will never have gone through this process. So we want to answer their questions, make sure that they feel comfortable making a vote, feeling fully informed. So we're going to take about five weeks. The vote will officially open on May 16th. And then we will be announcing the count results uh, in June 22nd. And I should say for all your listeners as well, that when that vote is announced, it does not mean, hey, picket signs up everywhere, everybody tools down, let's go. We have 90 days under the Labor Code to action that strike vote. And job action can look a lot different in a lot of different places. So it could be an overtime ban, or um, what we call work to rule, which is where a worker does exactly what their job profile or job description outlines, and none of those extras that all workers do all the time. Um, and, you know, we want to be very, very strategic about this, and we want to, you know, make maximum impact to the employer, minimum impact to our public, and, of course, to our own members. So, um, again, 
the, the goal is to compel the employer to come back to the table with a realistic offer for our members. And when we're talking about realistic offers in this time of inflation, what does that mean? How does that change the negotiation piece? Because what the, what the union might have been looking for even just a couple of years ago could be very different than what we see today. Well, it's true. Um, and as I said, you know, cost of living adjustments were, were top of mind for all of our members. Um, you know, our last wage increase uh, was April 1st of last year, 2021, and it was a 2% wage increase. But we know cost of living across Canada hasn't been 2% since February, and we've seen that grow and grow. You know, in your opening introduction, you were talking about the cost of gas, the cost of groceries. We're, we're seeing rates of rent, which are tied to inflation. You know, MLA's uh, wage increases are tied to inflation. Um, we're asking that our members' wages be tied to inflation so that there is wage protection. They've been falling further and further behind. Anything less than that for our membership is a wage cut. And in mm -hmm. fact, just this morning, we saw announcements of at least three financial institutions that are increasing their workers' wages because of competitiveness. We know that, um, you know, there is the lowest unemployment numbers in 50 years. Um, Minister Ravi Kalan himself said there's going to be a million jobs into the future. We need to be able to compete for the best and brightest for the public services that people who live in British Columbia rely on. And to do that, we need to be able to compensate them appropriately. And there is more than just 33,000 members at play here. There are many uh, in this province who will be looking to tie their union wage to the cost of inflation. This is something that this government is going to have to deal with um, moving forward, really. Yes, um, there are about 400,000 public sector workers in bargaining this year. Um, as I mentioned, BCGU members are at all of those tables. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm not an economist, uh, but we have yeah, an amazing right. team at the BCGU that includes an actuary and researchers, our treasurer, Paul Finch. Um, and, you know, we've looked at the BC budget. We've looked at the economic um, outlook into the future, and we know this is affordable. And we know that this is important for the government to address because if they want strong, robust public services that, like I said, British Columbians rely on every single day, we need to be able to not only keep the amazing staff we already have, but we need to be able to recruit into the future. And so that means addressing wages so that people can afford to live where they work. Yeah, it does really circle back to the affordability piece in a big way. Stephanie, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Jody. You have a good one. Bono and the Edge performing in a Kiev metro station in Ukraine. 
was a very busy weekend for Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. A show of support by superstars there in, in U2. Uh, U.S. First Lady Dr. Jill Biden also there to visit a shelter and offer her help and the thoughts of Americans. And our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a surprise visit. He raised the maple leaf over the Canadian consulate in Kiev and had this to say. It is clear that Vladimir Putin is responsible for heinous war crimes. There must be accountability. Canada will support Ukraine as you seek justice for your people who Russia is killing and brutalizing. So we want to talk about the politics of this. And uh, I, don't, I know I was surprised when I woke up to the news that Prime Minister Trudeau was in Ukraine, as I was about Dr. Jill Biden and Bono and The Edge. David Moscroft, our good, good friend and author, columnist, he wrote a book called Too Dumb for Democracy. It's a great book. You can get anywhere that fine books are sold. David Moscrop is with us. Uh, good to have you here. I'm wondering your thoughts on, on the surprises in Kiev this weekend. Well, there's a cynical take and a not cynical take. And I think, as usual, the truth is probably a mix of the two. Uh, the, I'll start with the cynical one so we can end on a high note. The <laughs> cynical take is, is this is what... Uh, politicians do, and this is what the Trudeau government does. It, it, they go and, and they try to get the best press they can, and if they can get it abroad and bring it home, all the better. In fact, this was a big play of the Trudeau government for years and years and years when it was first elected, was to get good foreign press, the kind of Canada is back, especially American European press, and then and come and feast on that at home, and it was good for business. Um, this is what politicians do. It goes way back. Uh, the, the less cynical take is this is a show of, of solidarity with an ally who has been invaded by an imperial force. And it's important for politicians around the world to go and, and to draw attention to it and to make sure they put, you know, to a little to a degree, uh, some, some skin in the game right there. And, and I think, again, the truth is probably a mix of the two. As much as I want to believe the, uh, the less cynical one as a rule, you know, but years of doing this, you get a little bit cynical. I can see why. Um, when, but when it comes to putting one's leaders in what could be very well harm's way, we're seeing that more and more prevalently with regard to the quote-unquote West, right? We're mm -hmm. seeing leaders from across the Western world, NATO members showing up in Ukraine, not on the border, just on the other side in Poland or what have you, which was the case just a few weeks ago. But here we are 10 weeks into this this uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and seeing some significant leaders, including our own, uh, in the capital. Yes, and I mean, again, it's, it's uh, I think, a bit of a testament to just how, how clear these folks are about whose side they're on and, and uh, their commitment to, uh, to the cause. I mean, you know, Trudeau wasn't just there symbolically. He was also announcing money uh, and, and aid and use the occasion to, to say that Putin was creating, uh, was responsible for heinous war crimes, uh, which, which has more than symbolic implications depending on, on how this all plays out. Um, so this, again, that's the less cynical take. And uh, it's certainly not new. You know, one thinks, for instance, uh, this is probably relatively safe compared to, say, when Francois Mitterrand of France went to Sarajevo during the siege in 1992 and sort of got caught up in it a little bit. So this is something that, that has been done before um, to, to a greater or lesser risk. 
I suspect the risks are probably slightly less in this case than say they were for Mitterrand, 92 and Sarajevo. But again, it's, it's an indication of just how serious the West is taking this. You know, Boris Johnson is another example, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that as, as surprising as this might be for Canadians to see, once you had, uh, you know, the, the first lady on her way, uh, Boris Johnson had been previously there, it seemed all but inevitable that Canada would, would follow suit before long. So when it comes to, comes to the politics of this moving forward, I mean, when you look at Victory Day uh, in Russia, I mean, it was quite the weekend um, in in just the, the show of, uh, I don't even know, pomp and circumstance in a, in a, in a warring way, in a saber-rattling way, and yet Putin was looking to... to shatter or break the, the unity of the West and has proven over this last 10 weeks that mostly he's solidified things. Yeah, I mean, if this was, uh, if the calculation was that there would be no resistance, then it was obviously a miscalculation. And if the calculation was that he could cow Western uh, NATO and, and uh, pro-NATO forces into to backing down, Obviously, that was a miscalculation, too. And what you've seen is a rallying of the West in, in, in defiance of the invasion. That's largely cut across political lines, except for some uh, folks on the uh, farther left. You know, even Charlie Angus of the NDP supported Justin Trudeau being in, in, in Ukraine. He tweeted to that effect that he you know, disagrees with the prime minister, but thought this was an important show of, of solidarity. Uh, so you've seen a sort of unusual alliance emerge across countries and across, in many cases, the political spectrum. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think Putin is playing six-dimensional chess here. <laughs> chess here. Yeah. I think the, the answer is that he miscalculated. Um, and the question is, who's going to stick it out longer? Uh, I don't, who knows with these things, but at the moment, it seems like the Ukraine and the Western forces that are backing them directly and indirectly have no intention of backing them. This could go on for a very long time, couldn't it? Oh, I suspect so. In one form or another, I suspect the remnants of this will will continue, and it has been going on in one form or another for a long time. I mean, this is, as, as you know, some experts will point out, the continuation of of yeah. a very long politics that goes back, you know, well, at least to depending on how you want to score, at least to the area of the Soviet Union, but even before. And it's a struggle of a people who want to self determine and want to be free and have wanted that for a long time. Uh, that struggle is always going on um, somewhere. David, it's always great to get your perspective on these things. I like that you uh, attempted to end this on a high note after having the cynical one off the top. I count on you to give us all of the spectrums. Uh, Also, love your book, Too Dumb for Democracy, is the title of David Moscroft's book. You can read him all over the place. He's a political commentator and writes for the National Post, the Washington Post. You've got so many hats, I, I, I don't even know if I can name them all. The Globe and Mail. I've now got their books column in the Globe and Mail. Do you, can you believe this? They, they let you, they pay you to read books? Talk about ending on a high note. Bravo, my friends. What Bravo. a deal. Thank you. <laughs> always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for taking the call. As always, David, I appreciate you. We'll talk soon. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions 
That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. How's your grocery shopping going? Are you finding it's a little bit of a gulp moment when you used to get multiple bags of groceries for your budgeted amount and now there's just one? <laughs> I'm feeling that. It was no surprise when some businesses were able to cash in over these last couple of years. COVID-19 had all of us going home and staying home. The delivery services were doing real well. Online shopping, certain items spiked. Toilet paper. But as we attempt to find uh, some balance in a world of inflation and, and affordability, some are kind of questioning whether the line might be on profit. In fact, there is a, a bit of a, a, of a furrowed brow looking at the profits being made by grocery stores. Um, when, when it comes to necessities, the struggle is real in an affordability cri- crisis. Does it feel like you're being gouged by grocery stores? Well, I mean... They're in the business of making money, right? Yeah. Okay, so where's the line or should there be one? To kind of understand this more, let's bring onto the program Errol Chair in the business of food. Simon Samoji is with us. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you for having me. I'm fascinated by this because I'm confused when it comes to that big controversy over the, mm-hmm. the price fixing on bread. And then on the other side of the of the equation is we can charge $12 for bread if somebody will pay for the bread, that art, artisanal, made local, you know, shipped in special once a week. It, it, where is the line and what are the rules, if any, when it comes to groceries and costs? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting game. I mean, the, the, the major grocers, uh, such as Loblaws, uh, which has the Loblaw stores and, and Real Canadian Superstore in BC and, and Metro in Quebec and, and Empire that runs Sobeys in Eastern Canada. These are big companies and they've, they've had a lot of success in the last 12 months. Uh, the recent results show that Loblaw's profit increased by 40%. So it, it 40. doesn't, as I said, 40, 40%. 40%. Yeah, 40% increase in profit and just that number, it doesn't look good. Um, particularly, you know, when these big profits, you know, they're at a time when Canadians and even their, their suppliers are hurting. So it definitely doesn't look good. So when we get to the conversation about what the business of of grocers are like, as the Loblaws mm-hmm. chief financial officer, as is quoted in the in the article in the Star, uh, you know, has basically said that the company bases its pricing on its competition not inflation. So is there any one individual that's to blame or one company that's to blame here? Or is everybody sort of on side going, you know, how about, are we going with the $5 cucumber this week, folks? Yeah. So there's been, uh, you know, some bad news for companies like, particularly for Loblaws in the, in the last few months, or oh, sorry, yeah, probably the last few months, I should say. So, you know, they've been having a war with Frito-Lay over, mm-hmm. The, the price that they can sell their uh, chips for and, and Frito-Lay is one of their big suppliers and, and they're saying we need to increase the price at the grocery store and they're saying no. So there, there's, a, there's a bit of uh, pushing and shoving going on between the grocers uh, and Loblaws is the biggest one, so the grocers and their suppliers. And, you know, you, you can understand that there's a lot of things happening in the food supply chain and that's making it tough. Uh, so... 
We're seeing higher feed costs, which increases the price of dairy and meat. So high fuel costs, which increases the, the, the cost of transporting food. Uh, grain, cri- grain prices are going up. Uh, because uh, droughts in part of the world and the, the UK conflict, and also you're just people are getting paid some higher wages as well to some extent. So, all these factors are being pushed onto the suppliers of the major grocers, and then they're having to supply the major grocers, but they're not willing to increase price and increase the money that the suppliers are getting. So, it, it's a tough time for consumers and it's a tough time for suppliers. And yet here we are looking at that 40% surge in profits for Loblaws by that one metric with all of what you just explained, because it makes sense to me. I'm going to pay extra because the gas to, to get the truck that goes from the shipping mm-hmm. container to the grocery store warehouse and then from the warehouse to the actual grocery store where I get my stock from. Um, I, I kind of understand where that price is going to be inflated. But when where are the profits coming from then? Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, as I said, Loblaws is the, the biggest grocer in Canada. Uh, it's also the biggest private sector employer uh, in Canada. Uh, and the, what they're seeing is because of these higher prices, consumers are getting far more savvy about the way they buy. So they're going to the discount stores such as uh, you know, Food Basics, No Frills, uh, and they're spending a lot more money there. And what happens is that people go to those stores and they typically buy up more of the private labels, uh, such as for Loblaws, you've got President's Choice, you've got their no-name brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're low in price, but they make more money for the grocer. Um, so it, it's a, a bit of a double whammy ha- happening here as well. We're also seeing people becoming more busy as a result of opening up, as a result of, you know, COVID's dropping a bit. And yeah. so food sales at uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, which is once again a Loblaws uh, store, the sales are up there as well. But the products in those stores are more expensive. Uh, right. So, But th- this discount stores, they're really making a fair bit of money from them and their private labels. We're with Simon Samoji, Errol Chair in the Business of Food. And wow, that's a light bulb moment for me, probably for many listening now as well, that we have shifted our buying to the no-name brand or the house brand as opposed to the fancier um, import, perhaps. I didn't realize that the margin, obviously, it would be the margin on like that President's Choice barbecue mm-hmm. sauce would be greater than the one that shipped in from south of the border Um for, for the consumer for that niche, but trying to bring the costs down in trying to reduce our grocery costs, we're actually lining the pockets more of the supermarkets. And frankly, they're in the business to make money, right? Like it has to be profitable for grocers. It, it has to be profitable for the grocers. If you think about it, Loblaws is Canada's one of Canada's sorry, Loblaws is one of Canada's biggest companies. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a lot of pension funds, uh, a lot of mutual funds, they, they invest in their shares. So in some ways, that money sort of goes back to shareholders, uh, which are, you know, people who are retired, uh, people who are on pension. So that's good in some way, but then it really hurts uh, consumers out there who are, you know, seeing housing prices skyrocket, you know, the, putting fuel into a, a car is expensive. Uh, so it's not not great. So it's a balancing act here, but yeah, it really opens the eyes, as you said before, that you know, forty percent increase in profit. So in the business of food, is it bad business for there to be a headline like Loblaws profit surge to forty percent? 
I suppose it, it doesn't look good for them. Um, as you said, they're in the business of making money and making returns to their shareholders. Uh, but there has to be some give and take here because, you know, they've got to treat their suppliers well. And, you know, there's been talk about having a, a code of ethics or in, in Canadian grocery store suppliers that, uh, that the grocers move into. Um, but that has been very slow coming. Um, also, we don't have a lot of competition. We have, you know, three or four big companies that run most of our grocery stores, but mm. it, it's, it's tough to get more competition into grocery store businesses. These are businesses that run complex distribution and logistic system. They run very big warehouses. You need to invest tens of billions of dollars to be able to start up a, a new business. And if people have got good memories, you'll remember when Target tried to come into Canada about two or five or six years ago, and it just didn't work out because they couldn't yeah. get the, the system working. Uh, so it, it doesn't look good at the, for, for, uh, for them at all. Interesting that you bring up Target because I remember that vividly being one who would cross the border and, and visit Target and be like, ooh, look at all these deals. It's so inexpensive. And then Target opened up here and I walked in. I'm like, this is not inexpensive because mm. they couldn't make it happen the way they can in the U.S., just in, in mass quantities down there. I want to touch on the Frito-Lay thing one more time because I think it's really mm. an, an important piece of this. I didn't understand the process because when you think Frito-Lay, you think big company, you don't think Canadian people potato farmers, but the Canadian mm -hmm. potato farmers who are paying more for the fuels, the fuel and, and, and getting their product to market don't have the right to say how much their chips are sold for in these big grocery store chains, right? That, that's true. So, you know, that the farmers have got to, they've got to pay for fertilizer, they've got to pay for fuel for their vehicles, they've got to pay themselves a, a, a living wage. And they sell what is essentially a, a bulk commodity, a potato, to a company like Frito-Lay. Mm -hmm. uh, and then so the cost, of, the cost goes up for Frito-Lay. And then Frito-Lay, you know, they're running big business with, has lots of machinery, lots, still lots of people working in them. Uh, and then trying to pass on all the costs from the farm to the processing facility uh, to the logistics over to Loblaws, you think, well, okay, Loblaws is happy to then increase by 10, 20%, whatever it may be, that the cost as Frito-Lay is incurring, but that's not the case. Loblaws want us has, or all our grocers want to have products as low as possible. But then they, as I mentioned before, have their own private labels, the no-name brands, the president's right. choice. Uh, and so... You know, if you don't buy the Frito-Lay, it pushes over consumers over to the somewhat cheaper uh, yeah. private labels, which is which is good for them as well. Right. The larger margin. This is fascinating, Simon. Thank you mm. for shining some light on this. It's important that we understand because if we're going into that grocery store looking for our Frito-Lay Ripple chip because we want our chips and dip and it's not available and we just pivot to that no-name brand, that's where some of these profits are coming from, to put it in an ultra-simplistic way. Th that is true. But yeah, Thank you very much for having me. Jody Vanson for Mike on this Monday. Glad to have you along for the ride. And we're going to talk about big tech companies, companies like Twitter and Google. Do you trust them? Do you trust them less than you used to? 
Do you rely on them more and trust them less than you used to? I know I probably fall into that latter category. I want to talk this through with David Dunn, the professor and director at Gustafson School of Business at the University of Victoria, uh, who's written about this, who's commented about this, and, and is going to educate us a little bit about why fewer Canadians have trust in big tech. David, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, nice to nice to talk to you, Jody. Uh, Jody, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's go through why it is that that Canadians perhaps have more distrust of big tech companies. Aren't were they supposed to be there to be our you know the machine in our hand that tells us all of the truths? We no longer need to flip through our mental Rolodex. We can just you know ask Siri and and he or she will tell us what we need to know. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I should uh, briefly mention that uh, what, I, what I'll be talking about is a, an annual survey that we do on over 400 brands with 9,000 plus consumers in Canada every year. And we just released right. the results of this. So consistently over the past few years, the uh, tech companies and particularly social media companies have been at the bottom of, <laughs> of this index. And yeah. there, are a number, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one of those is how they treat data. So the whole issue of data privacy is a, is a big issue for a lot of consumers. The other big one, of course, is fake news, right? And that's, mm. that's a whole umbrella that captures a whole lot of things that people find that, uh, that you know, there are a lot of conspiracy theories, for example, on these, on these platforms. And the third one then is owner misbehavior. And we see that with uh, you know, larger than life personalities like Elon Musk and Travis Kalanick, that they that they if they misbehave, they tend to have an effect on the the trust in their brands. So what we've seen then since uh, twenty since about twenty sixteen, we started doing this in in uh, uh, twenty fifteen. But uh, since about twenty sixteen, we've seen social media really slide in terms of uh, uh, consumer trust. Uh, followed also by search engines. You mentioned Google and search engines have, have dropped significantly. So, so uh, meanwhile, traditional media have, have they've held up generally, although they dropped uh, in the past couple of in the past year essentially. But uh, you know, we 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 distrust uh, social media in particular. I think because uh, I mean, a lot of this started with the evidence of manipulation of the U.S. election in 2016 and of the, mm-hmm. of the Brexit vote. Those, those things certainly entered into people's consciousness. Um, and then uh, when the pandemic came, um, platforms like uh, like Facebook, and in particular, uh, if you remember, Spotify was an interesting one that got drawn into this. The whole issue of conspiracy theories uh, right. uh, came up. So when we were doing the survey in January, the Joe Rogan controversy on Spotify was was very much alive, and that really affected their, their their scores. And the other piece of it, of course, is the echo chamber. That in um, in on social media, we uh, we trust those we know, right? And unfortunately, mm-hmm. those those we know are not necessarily great sources for for objective information. So where can somebody find the Gustafson Brand Trust Index? I'm looking at it here in the Vancouver Sun, and, and it really is fascinating to see yeah. over those years the decline in some, and, and as you mentioned, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, not surprisingly, rather intertwined and what have you, but a little bit, I mean, not maybe even more than a little bit, the dip in Google. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and as I say, it is part of a, it is part of a pattern. Uh, you can find it, by the way, on the web. Um, so it's uh, we we have a a website. It's uvic.ca 
forward slash Gustafson forward slash brand trust. And you'll find all the all the information there. It's a, it's a public service that we do, and uh, so you'll great. find the, the full report there. Um, yeah, I mean Google. I mean, if you look, the other the other interesting pattern I think is uh, if you look at the uh, this across age group, um, mm-hmm. it might you might find it interesting. That, but the people who trust tech companies the least are the youngest age group, the eighteen to thirty five. Right, and so if you if you look down at the you know what's at the bottom of their of their trust uh, mm-hmm. of their brands trusted, they have Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, WeChat, Facebook. They use them, uh, use them, but they don't uh, they they don't uh, trust them at all. I mean, it, the pattern is there across other age groups, but it seems as if the the younger age groups are leading the the uh, trust index down, if you like, with respect to these brands. I could literally do an hour of this with you because I'm fascinated by the research and what you have found. I want to ask you, though, before uh, we run out of time here, uh, is there a one most trusted brand in Canada? Yeah, there is, actually. Um, I've, the, uh, the the most trusted brand, and it's the, been the most trusted brand for, in our index for a number of years, Whiteford, is the Canadian Automobile Association. Everybody trusts the CAA across age groups, actually. Huh. And the reason, the reason for that is uh, we measure the, uh, the index according to three things. One is, does the brand do what it's supposed to do, provide value for money, fulfill its promises? Does it have good, does it treat customers well? And does it have the right values? You know, does it, is it sustainable? Is it look after communities and employees? CAA is is one brand that scores really high on all three of those and that's uh, and that's why they've been a consistent success okay interesting other, yeah other brands i mean this year uh band-aid came very came number two uh costco was number three costco's always done well but that's their community-based organization other brands like home hardware did very well lego bose president's choice dyson interact shoppers drug mart and mec Oh, that, that hmm. was our top ten. Yeah, those hit. Those hit all with me. I have to say, you yeah. know, just in, in full disclosure, as you're saying, like I'm waiting for one that I don't. I'm like, no, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And the worst of yeah. the worst. Do we have a worst five? Uh, yeah. Well, the worst. The worst five um, would be. I mean, starting at the starting at the bottom, the worst five would be uh, Facebook, uh, TikTok, Huawei, Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> None of those surprised me either. No. Wow, this is interesting. Um, yeah. So if you want to, if you want to look at the Gustafson Brand Trust Index, you can find yeah. it at, at the University of Victoria's website. There's some great yeah. information to parse out and discuss with not just the young people in your life, but the older generation as well. Because I think there's a lot to be learned from this, uh, Professor. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Sure. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Take care.